From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. When the world shut down in the pandemic, a small plot of land opened the world to Fort Collins author Camille Dungy. Her garden became a passion project. But what would the neighbors think? We are a black family in northern Colorado, which puts us at a very small percentage of the population. (laughs) And when we moved into the HOA, there were rules about what you could and couldn't have in your yard. And my little wildflower patches in the yard were essentially against those rules and expectations. Dungy has written Soil, the story of a black mother's garden. It's about plants, but also politics and parenting. Reopen the book with us as we turn the page. Before the gold rush, Colorado did have boom towns. One of the first was ideally situated where the Arkansas River spills onto the Great Plains. In the autumn of 1842, fur trappers and their families built an adobe fort there, and by the next spring, there was a settlement. As mountain man Jim Beckworth recounted, we gave it the name Pueblo. The word means both village and people, and has been used to name permanent villages of many native communities across the Southwest. Eventually, this Pueblo would attract people from all directions, especially when the steel mills came to town. Pueblo became one of the most diverse cities in the West, with steelworkers speaking more than 40 languages and dozens of newspapers keeping them informed, including El Colorodeño in Spanish, La Voce de Popolo in Italian, Pueblosque Novice in Slovenian, and for a few years in the 1880s, the English language, and aptly named, Pueblo Welcome. A Colorado postcard from CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner at the Denver Botanic Gardens for a conversation about blooming where you're planted. Writer and professor Camille T. Dungy has written Soil, the story of a black mother's garden. It is about how her garden in Fort Collins became her world when the pandemic forced us to stay home. As she tends to her hollyhocks and yellow columbine, She must also tend to her own mental health and her family's as learning goes remote, as wildfires rage nearby, and as police claim the lives of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. We chose Soil for Turn the Page, where we read together. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. And let's welcome Camille Dungy to the stage here at Botanic Gardens. Thank you. You were born in Colorado. You left when you were a toddler. And so when you became a professor of poetry and creative writing at Colorado State University, it was something of a homecoming. You, your husband Ray, and your daughter Callie bought a home in Fort Collins. What was the landscaping like when you moved in? It was pretty monochromatic. (laughs) There was a large swath of lawn which had been very well biocided so that it was just lawn. Oh, biocided. Biocided, right. Plenty of herbicides and things to keep everything but the Kentucky bluegrass out. There were a few cedar trees and juniper bushes and then 
everything else was pretty much covered with river rock and hardscaping. So it was just green and gray. Green and gray and Kentucky bluegrass. You know, this is something that so many Easterners imported with them when they came west. How, how did it make you feel? It was just kind of dull. Also, we moved into the house in August, and it hadn't been occupied for quite some time, so the sprinkler system hadn't been going. And so I said it was kind of green and dull, but it was really kind of brown because <laughs> <laughs> the, the lawn wasn't taken care of. And really, for me, we moved here from the Bay Area where things, it's kind of like Eden there. You know, something's always in bloom. You can pluck a fruit from a tree anywhere, and it's always very vibrant. So the real trouble with that yard for me started in February, and then March, April, May, when there was nothing. Nothing. (laughs) Nothing to look at. You decided to transform your parcel, or at least a part of it, a transformation you dubbed the Prairie Project. What was your motivation, Camille? There was a stretch in the South Lawn that our daughter was three at the time we moved to the house, and so I did want some lawn for her to be able to play in, but that particular stretch, because we stopped using herbicides, just sprouted with thistle and dandelion and all kinds of hard-to-walk-on weeds, and it was just also still just plain and flat. And so we decided to remove that stretch. It's about, you know, maybe 800 square feet, took the sod out of that and planted it with pollinators and primarily Western native plants. And so we wanted this to be a place that was welcoming to our beneficial insects, but also like somewhat reminiscent of the prairies that would have been there Mm. before. And attractive to you. And it's your family, so and your much daughter. more lovely to look out the window and see all that color and light and life. There was a hummingbird today just floating around, not going to a feeder, going to the plants that were there that were its natural food source. And so that kind of just delight is possible when we created the Prairie Project. Have you gotten a lot of rain? recently. So much rain. So much rain. What is the effect of that right now? Everything is like 25 feet tall. (laughs) (laughs) Super leggy. Everything got really, really leggy and really tall. And so... Oh, wait. That is such a great adjective for plants. Leggy. Mm -hmm. Uh Their stems just got really tall. So I'm pretty soon, once the blooms come out, uh, I'm going to have to be staking things everywhere. Things that don't normally get higher than knee height are sometimes up to my waist this year. It's really, it's gorgeous. Um, thank you, Garden, for showing up the year that I had this book published. So if people want to be home. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you describe plants indeed as leggy. I think somewhere in your book, you liken a particular flower to the rockettes, in fact. A fuchsia. Yeah, a fuchsia. Um, To um, Moulin Rouge Dancing Girls. Yes. How do you come up with simile and metaphor? Fuchsias look like Moulin Rouge Dancing Girls. (laughs) 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 They got their little pistol legs kicking in their lovely skirts. I trained as a poet, 
And I don't know how much of that is nature or nurture or training as a poet makes you pay attention to metaphor and image more carefully, but also innately being a person who paid attention to what things look like made it possible that I was you know, better suited for that line of work. Um, so I think it ends up being both practice and innate to be able to learn how to describe things. Right, something innate that you've also trained to some extent. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite words is petrichor, which is the smell of the earth after it rains. You also, in this book, invoke chlorophyll and loam Mm. when you talk about scent. Loam's a good word, isn't it? Loam is a good word. I love how it's spelled Mm L-O-A-M. Do you think scent is underused in writing? I have a exercise I do with students when I'm teaching and I have them start apprehending the world through their most dominant sense, which for most of us is sight or sound. And then after they get really good with that, I then spring on them that then they have to apprehend the world through their least dominant sense. And it's very frequently smell, that people have difficulty describing smell and understanding what it is they're smelling. It's difficult for me to describe smell without also reaching into one of the other senses. Mm. And so back to this question of practice versus um, innate, it is not my strongest sense, but it feels really important. It's a garden. I'm trying to describe a garden, right? (laughs) And so it feels really important to be able to, there's one plant I describe, like it smells like popcorn, like it's a grass and it's little kernels. I don't even know what now, panicles, I think are what they're called. There's all of these plant people. I want to be careful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It smell like popcorn. And so that, like, I, I just feel like if I can get into being able to describe smell, it's like the smell is back there in our lizard brain, right? It's one of those really deep, innate senses that I think doesn't always talk to our frontal cortex and being able to make that connection for Mm. my readers and for myself feels helpful. While you expected the garden would be a passion project, I don't think you anticipated it would become your world. No. When the world shut down. This was not the book you set out to write. No. (laughs) I mean, I don't want to say... You threw a tantrum, exactly. But I you did, were, though. I did. You did. Okay. <laughs> you were frustrated. You'd gotten this huge grant to take some time off from the slog of teaching and write. And then this little coronavirus thing comes along. You are closing your eyes and taking a breath as I said. <laughs> it's such a deep I breath. I don't feel like you've processed it. It's not it fully like, processed. Yeah. It's not... It was infuriating. And in the book I do, I describe a a temperature. It was a straight-up temper tantrum that I had one day, like tears and howling and (laughs) um, deep frustration and a completely nonplussed beloved husband being like, what is your problem, woman? Like, all of us are going through it right now. (laughs) Why do you feel like you're so special? And I feel like that's part of why this book is different than it would have been before the pandemic. I had written a proposal to get this big grant, and the proposal's title was Soil, 
different subtitle. But but I still thought that I was going to look at what grew up out of the landscape around me, but I don't think I would have been as acutely aware of what my community meant to me and how dependent I am on my community um, and how crucial it is to have it because then we didn't have it for a while. I don't think I would have been aware of the pressures on me as an artist, but also a mother and all of these other also's because I think the pandemic required me to pay attention to the balances of my life more carefully and consciously. Mm. And I also had like, because I was the one, my husband was working all the time trying to sort of get through that period. He had to convert a hundred student class from an in-person lecture to an online class over the weekend. He's a professor too. He's also a professor at CSU. And so that second half of the semester was just, he was just in his study working on this all the time. And I had this leave because of the grant. And so I had these little pockets of time to write when I wasn't overseeing my daughter's schoolwork or I wasn't sort of taking care of all the household concerns. And I just kept thinking about how many people's work we don't hear about because either they don't get those little pockets of time at all, Mm. or if they do get those little pockets of time and do as I ended up doing, where I also wrote about what was happening with the laundry and what I was cooking and what was in the stove as I was walking around the garden. I sort of just folded that all together. And very frequently with environmental writing in particular, that would have disqualified the work. I love this line from the book. Why doesn't anyone in foundational environmental literature seem to have to do the dishes? (laughs) And so I would like to play some of you and your daughter singing and then have you tell us about this song you crafted. Okay. La, 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 walking through the woods, no one to think about but me. Nothing but me Walking through the woods with just me (laughs) What is this song about? (laughs) The night we first co-wrote that beautiful tune (laughs) I had been listening to an audiobook and it made me very angry, and I was setting the table for dinner, and I slammed the dishes down on the table, and Kelly was like, what is happening? And I was like, I don't understand why there are no people in the worlds of these environmental writers, why they erase their, everybody around them, and it just it infuriated me. Oh, like, like Walden. The, uh, yes. <laughs> Yes and no. Like, I actually feel like Thoreau sort of, um, Thoreau might be a difference because he actually does write about people, but the mythology around Walden erases all the people. Uh, but I think when I'm, when I'm writing, I talk about Pilgrim at Tinker Creek by Annie Dillard, who just goes out to her 
house with the lights in it or whatever, just writes all by herself. There's like hardly any people, hardly any world. Edward Abbey, who was often like hanging out with his family, but you never hear about them in desert solitaire. (laughs) It is in the name. (laughs) Um, Like, why is this, like, what is happening with this erasure of people's families, their lives, the sort of domestic part of the world? Why does that have to happen? Um, And so fast forward, the pandemic has started. I'm sitting at the kitchen table trying to get my daughter to do her New Mexico, Utah territory worksheet she did not want to do and we had like she's fourth grade and we just like have that tussle that like only a 48 year old mother and her nine-year-old daughter could have right and I calmed down and asked her if she knew why I was frustrated and she actually said because you're supposed to be writing your book but you have to be homeschooling me instead and um yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, yes, and also that's not your fault. And also, what does this mean? And also, what does it mean that I feel like my book is compromised if I want to be writing about my family and if I want to be thinking about my community? Why do I think that I can't be writing this environmentally engaged book also? Remember that song we made, right? And then we just sang the song together and everything was good and it also helped me it just was like this huge reset that helped me realize like I needed to write a book that included my family and my community and my people even as I was writing about the greater than human world and all of the glory that was there that's to me the only way we're gonna survive is if we really honestly figure out how to integrate the realities of our daily lives with the sort of grandeur of the world. Right. It's like Bryce Canyon and the dishes. They can happen at the same time. Uh-huh. And they do for most of us, right? Yeah. They do for most of us that most of us don't get the liberty to just jaw mirror ourselves out into the middle of the Sierra for a couple of months, right? Like most of us have families, children, elder care, jobs, like like things to think about. And how can we write that into our manifestos? I love that you turned John Muir into a verb, by the way. <laughs> That's wonderful. This country's horticultural history, its agricultural history, is rooted in slavery. Is gardening an act of defiance? Is it taking something back? Hmm. I, think, I think there is definitely something to me about the empowerment of getting to choose what I want to plant, where I want to plant it, and how, and getting to fail, right? Because so much about gardening For me, maybe not for y'all out there, but for me, a lot of gardening is failure, that I picked the wrong light angle uh, for that particular plant, Um, or hail. (laughs) Hail just comes, and you've, like, nursed these tomato seedlings since January, and they're perfect, and they're weathered, and they're ready to go out there in the world, and that day it hails, not speaking from personal experience or anything. (laughs) 
And to be able to, like, okay, well, now I'll just go to the nursery and buy some more tomato plants, right? And nobody is counting on me to do this. Nobody's going to punish me for not doing it the way they expect it. Nobody is going, is expecting the fruits of my labor for themselves without my being able to enjoy them and appreciate it. So all of that freedom to choose and move forward, I am very aware of. You credit online forums of black gardeners with some of your horticultural success. And you did notice in those forums fear particularly of making mistakes. Mm -hmm. I think I hear you saying that, and I've heard this from people of color often, that there is a perfectionism, a feeling that they have to excel, that they have to always do well, that they put that kind of pressure on themselves because that pressure is put on them by society. Am I giving voice to that? Is that right? That, that feels accurate, yes. Okay. Did you deal with that perfectionism yourself? Did you have to get past the idea that something might die? I'm going to turn the question a little bit and just point out the fact that we are a black family in northern Colorado which puts us at a very small percentage of the population. (laughs) And we live in an HOA that when we moved into the HOA, there were very, there were rules about what you could and couldn't have in your yard. And my little fanciful shifts of creating these wildflower patches in the yard were essentially against those rules and expectations. And definitely my desire to leave up the brown stalks through the winter to give forage for birds and shelter for beneficial insects and such, that is definitely not part of that having an attractive yard in that kind of aesthetic. As a black family, there are so many, there's just so many examples of unwelcome, of deeded exclusion in HOA communities, et cetera, for people of color. Ideas about, well, you know, that black family moved in and now the property values have gone down the tubes. All of these kinds of expectations for excellence um, to prove that we're not that black family that's gonna ruin the property values and make everything ugly. And still, I've got these like gangly sunflower stalks still up in late May because it hasn't been 50 degrees at night for a week yet, making, you know, some questionable aesthetic (laughs) decisions. That is tricky sometimes to navigate this sense that a perceived failure in the garden, not even just the actual tomato plant, but like a perceived failure because what I'm doing is against a certain aesthetic mode and who I am physically in my body in the space is also against a certain aesthetic mode. Those clash then and take sometimes some grit. Were you ever reported? I was reported for leaving my compost bin, the green bin out 
for too long on the side of the house where it could be seen. Yes. Huh. During the pandemic, you watch your daughter's resilience grow and, quote, her imagination alongside it. She learned new ways to keep her mind busy, new ways to make herself smile. But after police kill Breonna Taylor in Kentucky, Callie would suddenly start hyperventilating. She worried police would kill her, you write. How do you, as a mother, help manage a fear like that? That is a daily question. And I think the answer to the question changes daily. For us, for my husband, Ray, and me, I think one of the keys is trying to be open and honest and hear the fears. Let her articulate the fears because they are completely justifiable. I remember early in this book tour, I read from that passage in a public live streamed reading and my father at family dinner that week said like, Callie, how do you, how do you feel about your mother writing about you and reading these sections in public? And Callie's like, I mean, isn't everybody anxious? Like, if you're not anxious right now, you're not paying attention. And so part of it is allowing her to say, this makes me anxious. This makes me afraid. And saying, this is fearsome making. That makes sense. Um, and letting that truth live. Um, and then part of it is demonstrating the places of shelter and safety and rejuvenation and care that are available to her as well so that you can have that fear and you also have places to go. Can you name one of those? My garden. Aha! <laughs> Way to stay on theme, Camille <laughs> Dungey. Thank you. Way to stay on theme. Your tie to Colorado State University is generational. Mm-hmm. I'd like you to tell us about your great uncle, Hugh. Hmm. Um, this is my maternal grandfather's brother, and he, in the 1950s, attended summer classes uh, for a master's degree in agriculture at Colorado State University because during the Jim Crow era, when black people from southern states wanted to earn higher degrees, they were not allowed to go to the state schools in Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana. But because of the separate but equal clause, there was this weird loophole where those states would pay for these black people to go to universities outside of their state. So they would pay for people to go to the University of Iowa, Colorado State University. My own grandfather went to England to get a graduate degree. Like they would just like these people who believed in education and wanted these opportunities for themselves figured out a way, but had to do so far from home. I learned something, well, something more about Colorado history thanks to a passage in Soil. So I'd like to have you read it for us. I like to think of my birth state as expansive and welcoming. 
When it was finally ratified in 1876, lawmen wrote the state's constitution in English, Spanish, and German, offering welcome to many men of European descent. But one of the reasons it took so long for Colorado to earn its statehood is that the territorial government repeatedly presented articles of constitution to Congress that withheld from black men, mulatto men, and native men the right to vote or serve on a jury. Even after the nation ratified the 13th and 14th Amendments, granting the full rights of citizenship to any man born or naturalized in the United States. Three times, leaders of the Colorado Territory tried to create a state where men like my husband, my father, or someone like the writer Langston Hughes could serve on no jury, could cast no vote. I am not always sure that I belong in Colorado. Though I have my little plot of land here that I love, I am nothing but a settler in this state, and not always a welcomed one. There is fascinating botanical history in this book. Will you draw the line for us between slave ships and a key ingredient in Coca-Cola? The cola nut. I think it's a tree uh, that grows in West Africa and was frequently used for uh, a stimulus and flavoring of water and kidnapped people kept many different kind of seeds and things that they would sort of hide away in pieces of cloth or in their hair and such. And the cola nut could be used to calm fetid water on the slavers' ships and make it more palatable to drink this water that was probably horrible. And so it came across, stayed in black communities in the American South, and then shows up in Coca-Cola and Pepsi and other kind of cola sodas in America. What's the difference to you between soil and dirt? Soil is alive. It's a vibrant substance that has the microbes and small animals and all the sources for creating more life. Dirt is infertile and not beneficial in that way. An interesting thing to me about soil is part of how it is so alive is it has digested death and destruction and decay and horror. And I believe that when I'm thinking about how I make a home for myself, circling back to the question of how to deal with my daughter's fears, ignoring the decay and the rot and the horror is not how you make fertile soil. It's not how you grow. Paying attention to the horrors of our history and our reality and figuring out how to digest and absorb and change and renovate and create fertile futures out of that, that's what soil is, right? Soil Mm. gives life. (laughs) 
At Denver Botanic Gardens, we're hearing from author and professor Camille Dungy of Fort Collins. Her new book is Soil, the story of a black mother's garden. When we come back, questions from our fellow readers, like her favorite plant these days, which is officially a weed. This is an encore of Turn the Page with Colorado Matters from CPR News. Who doesn't love a good buy one, get one free deal? Employer matching gift programs are kind of like that. They can turn a $100 gift into a $200 gift. Typically, a matching gift request just needs to be registered within the calendar year the donation was made. So even if you donated months ago, you could still double your gift and increase your investment in CPR. Start now at CPR.org slash gift match. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We read together in our series, Turn the Page, and our latest pick is Soil, the story of a black mother's garden. Author Camille T. Dungy joined me on stage in July at Denver Botanic Gardens to take my questions and yours. Kimberly Cronwall in Denver asks, what has been your newest favorite garden plant and why? Well, the newest is an interesting question because I have a go-to answer for this, but it's not blooming yet. So my typical favorite plant right in the garden is this one called the Nettles Larkspur, which is just this weed. (laughs) Uh, I mean, it's officially like in the weeds of the West. It's classified that way, but it's just so lovely and delicate and, and resilient. It just keeps coming back in this delightful way. This summer, though, I think we're officially in summer now. It was a with all that rain, like the summer start felt really delayed. But this year, the evening primrose has, it's been in for three years now, and it's taken hold. And it is just robust and lovely and blossoming all the time. And and it's great in the evenings when we're out eating outside because it attracts all these things later because it's evening primrose. So right now, my new favorite in answer to your question uh, is the evening primrose. Jennifer Garfine in Denver, referring to your reading earlier, asks, do you feel there is any place in the United States where you would feel fully welcomed? No. (laughs) Uh, No is the quick answer, but the more complicated answer is every place where I go in the United States, there is the potential for welcome with the right people and the right kinds of openness of humanity. I have found welcome everywhere I've gone also. Andrea Howland in Greenwood Village says, tell us about your early experiences with nature and how and when gardening became important to you. Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Thank you. And I I ended up having to write into that question for two reasons. One is one of the ways that the book became different um, during the pandemic was I had to really intellectually understand that this whole sort of concept of an individual genius is bunk. It's not true. Like nobody who we consider to be a genius does it by themselves. They all have this sort of incredible net of support and also history that they're drawing on. And so I, in resisting the idea of individual genius, had to bring my 
net into the book and also really talk about the traditions I was building from. Right. So if, if you don't believe in the theory of the lone genius, then you have to look at who lifted you up. Correct. Who brought you to where you were. Correct. And what did you discover? There a lot. <laughs> a lot of other, uh, there's a poet named Ann Spencer who I write about, a black woman who lived in Lynchburg, Virginia, very rarely didn't leave Lynchburg, Virginia in her adult life, and yet she's on a stamp. Wonderful poet, uh, figured as one of the key Harlem Renaissance poets, even though she never left uh, she never went to Harlem. And she had this amazing garden, spectacular garden in Lynchburg, Virginia, that was a resting place for people as they traveled uh, around the American West, particularly on their way to Washington, D.C. She made this beautiful garden that was a space. And I was just digging in my garden one day. I was like, oh, yeah, Ann Spencer. <laughs> Ann Spencer, I understood myself. I, I taught for seven years in Lynchburg, Virginia. I understood the sort of possibility of being a poet, an activist, a parent, and like as somebody who really cared about the greater than human world differently the moment I walked into Ann Spencer's garden. So that's one of the people sort of in my literary legacy, but also my parents. When I left Colorado, we went to Southern California, and we had a house there they built, and they took their time creating the lawn against, you know, a, it, it took some effort um, to resist the homogeneity of the landscaping of the neighborhood to make a yard that was water-wise, had drip irrigation in the 1970s, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that used plants that made more sense for the region, some native plants, et cetera. And so that, like, I think had just always been something that had been given a priority value in my life. And did, did writing the book bring those memories up? And, and, and maybe images you had forgotten or buried or... Writing the book made me think about these questions um, and write into them. It caused me sometimes to ask my parents to clarify memories that I had, that my memories were flawed or incomplete. I mean, they're often memories from when I was like four or five years old, you know, so obviously flawed or incomplete. And so I would ask for follow-up information that I don't think I might have done if I weren't writing the book. And sometimes it was a matter of writing the book that made make me want to do that. And sometimes it was actually working in the garden that I would sort of put in some particular plant that would remind me of something that would then create that link for oh, me. A sense memory. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so. lovely. Nicole Duncan in Denver says, as a little black girl, I grew up believing gardens and plants were for white people. Mm -hmm. Now I have my own garden here in Denver. What's been the most common response, Nicole asks, that you've gotten from the black community with your book? Thank you. Thank you is the most, like, gratitude uh, has been the most common response and a kind of recognition that, so the, I think the gratitude comes from thank you for showing this reality that has felt right to me, but that I don't see often demonstrated in environmental literature. And you are not alone in that thought that these spaces 
have felt to many of us for a long time to be exclusionary, excluding people of color, and in some parts of it also sort of excluding women, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think being able to write a book that insists on inclusion and insists on connection-making, community-building, bridge-building has been a joyful thing and a really wonderful thing to see the response from people. We're getting a fair number of questions that have to do with your neighborhood, the HOA, and, and <laughs> Zarek landscaping. I'll just say, as a strange fact, the term Zeriscaping was coined by Denver Water, hmm. um, a, a word to describe plants that thrive naturally in the place where you live. Terry Trapp in Wheat Ridge asks, has there been a change in your neighborhood with anyone else planting a Zarek natural garden? Yeah, that's a great question. So when I started my garden project, I started small, largely because I have done the majority of this work myself. And so I started small just because that's what I had the capacity to do. But I also started small because it was against the rules. <laughs> and I figured I could start with a small little plot and, and they may overlook it because it was a relatively small plot. And then I would keep growing larger and larger and the neighborhood was going to catch up to me. I just knew it. I just knew the neighborhood was going to catch up to me because it makes sense. It makes sense. We need to protect our pollinators and we need to protect our water. And so this, like, it just didn't, I couldn't see any other way than mine. (laughs) My way was the right way. And I was right. So over the time that we have been doing this garden, my HOA dropped its rules against non-standard landscaping. And so my yard is fine and I won't get penalized for it. And the town of Fort Collins, city, city of Fort Collins, <laughs> um, has created incentive programs to encourage people to create these kinds of sustainable, water-wise, pollinator-friendly gardens and has made it much easier. And so I see many more of them around. And so I was right. Start small. <laughs> Molly Middleton in Denver weaves a bit of a comparison with her question. You talk about defying the homogeneity of HOA rules in growing your garden. In the context of the climate crisis, Molly says, we know that diversity is the key to resilience. Diversifying the trees and the forests makes them more resilient to wildfires, for example. We also know that BIPOC communities are going to be disproportionately burdened by the health impacts of climate change. Is there an analogy, Molly asks, this idea of facing the climate crisis and becoming stronger by defying homogeneity, focusing on diversity and diverse communities, not just diverse gardens? It sounds like she's written a blurb for my book. (laughs) That's beautiful. Absolutely, yes, yes. We need diverse environments in all the ways for strength, for vibrancy, for new growth and potential, for sustainability. 
diversity must happen with the human world and with the greater than human worlds in all ways. And I write about that. <laughs> right? Because like that just feels like, to me, almost the only thing to write about. And in writing about that, I have to think about questions of American history and why, where the examples of that truth exist, but also why so frequently that truth is resisted hmm. and pushed against and silenced, right? And why some of our ideas about planting and what to plant, when and where, really move towards homogeneity instead of diversity. And often there's, it's really linked, there's cultural values that are linked mm. with those natural decisions, right? And how do we resist that to continue to create this truly life-sustaining environment? Professor, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. This is fun. Camille T. Dungy, Distinguished Professor of Creative Writing and Poetry at Colorado State University in Fort Collins. Her new book is Soil, the Story of a Black Mother's Garden. We read it for Turn the Page, then gathered at Denver Botanic Gardens in July. Dungy also has a poetic side. In 2009, she put together an anthology called Black Nature, Four Centuries of African-American Nature Poetry. So I asked her to read a piece from a writer she included. She chose something by Lucille Clifton. This poem is called Mulberry Fields. They thought the field was wasting, and so they gathered the marker rocks and stones and piled them into a barn. They say that the rocks were shaped, some of them scratched with triangles and other forms. They must have been trying to invent some new language, they say. The rocks went to build that wall there, guarding the manor, and some few were used for the state house. Crops refused to grow. I say the stones marked an old tongue, and it was called eternity, and pointed toward the river. I say that after that collection, no pillow in the big house dreamed. I say that somewhere under here molders one called Alice, whose great-grandson is old now, too, and refuses to talk about slavery. I say that at the master's table, only one plate is set for supper. I say no seed can flourish on this ground, once planted, then forsaken. Wild berries warm a field of bones. Bloom how you must, I say. Mulberry Fields by Lucille Clifton read by our guest, Camille Dungy. Special thanks today to the Rocky Mountain Land Library for making this event possible. Our audio engineers were Pedro Lumbrano, Martin Skavish, and Justin Peacock. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. 
Well, our next Turn the Page event is just around the corner. The book is about what you might call an underwater ghost town. Colorado has several of them, including Iola, inundated to make way for Blue Mesa Reservoir. The remnants have emerged in severe drought. I think it was very haunting for all of us, especially the people who had been displaced. It was a very haunting reminder about the complexity of water issues in the American West and here on the Western Slope. We'll discuss Iola and the new novel set there, September 13th in Grand Junction. My guest is author Shelley Reed, and her book is Go as a River. Free tickets at CPR.org slash turn the page. Time for us to disappear now. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner.